that's Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass. I'm Meg Rowley, and on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, I welcome former Fangraphs newsletter compiler and current Sports Illustrated writer Emma Bachelary to the program to share with me her strange but hard-won expertise on campaign finance, a topic that is sadly in the baseball news. We also discuss the issues Emma is most curious to see play out this offseason, the upcoming winter meetings in Las Vegas, and seek to, in Emma's words, solve one of the great mysteries of our times. You can judge for yourself if we've succeeded, but before you do, it is my obligation to tell you that Fangraphs memberships are now available at Fangraphs.com. For the cost of one fancy latte a month, you can support the great work at Fangraphs, or for a slightly greater sum, you can purchase an ad-free membership. This ad, for no ads being now completed, I take you to my conversation with Emma Bachelary, Sports Illustrated writer and campaign finance guru. And I'm joined now. This feels very formal. This feels unnecessarily <laughs> formal. <laughs> By Emma Bachelary of Sports Hello. Illustrated. Hi. Hi. Happy to be uh, back here on Fangraphs Audio after a while away. A lengthy absence, one could say. You're a full-time baseball writer now. You've graduated from our, our little newsletter. <laughs> well, I've also literally graduated considering that the last time I came on here, I was still in college. Emma, that is a shocking thing to admit to (laughs) in a public forum. What a wild thing to say out loud in front of people. You're so young. Well, congratulations, you know. Well, congratulations to you too, who has taken over this podcast, obviously, uh, since the last time I was here. Yeah, I wrested it from Carson's hands as he turned into a literal bird, flew away from us. But I thought it would be fun or interesting for us to bring you back on for, you know, sort of general baseball talk. But then you also happen to have a a bit of of special expertise that I think uh, will be sadly useful to our, our listeners, which is that you spent time in your life thinking a lot about campaign finance and campaign finance disclosures. I did. Certainly wouldn't call myself an expert, but I, uh, after I graduated college, was a postgraduate intern at the Center for Responsive Politics, which is a campaign finance nonpartisan nonprofit group that runs Open Secrets, which is known as a database and repository of a bunch of campaign finance info. So uh, yeah, I am not nearly as qualified to talk on this as a lot of other people, but I'm also probably marginally more qualified than also a lot of other people. So there's that. Certainly marginally more qualified than many baseball people. And I think all we ever really look for on Fangraphs Audio is people who are marginally more qualified than others to opine potentially at length (laughs) on a subject. And and baseball uh, has gotten in a bit of hot water, I think is the term that Cheryl Ring used to describe this when she wrote about it for Fangraphs, in that um, over the weekend, we learned that Major League Baseball's, well, I should be precise in exactly where these donations came from. The The office of the commissioner of Major League Baseball's political action committee was found after campaign disclosures were released to have made some, some controversial campaign uh, donations to Cindy Hyde-Smith, who is a, a Republican senatorial candidate 
in Mississippi who has gotten in a bit of hot water herself for uh, statements made throughout her campaign. So Emma, if you're comfortable, can you tell us what happened here? Yes, as most people probably know, the general election cycle is over and there was a limit on how much PACs like the Office of the Commissioner of Major League Baseball's PAC could donate in a general election. But Hyde Smith is in a special election where that contribution counter kind of resets and so groups can donate again. And yeah, the PAC that's tied to the commissioner's office gave a donation of $5,000, which is the maximum on November 23rd, which was about two-ish weeks after Hyde Smith began getting in hot water, as we've called it here, for (laughs) her various... uh, comments. And that ended up being a pretty big deal, given that uh, that hot water has been hot enough to get several other big corporate entities, including Walmart's PAC and others, to demand donations back. And at a time when other groups were saying that they wanted their money out of her campaign, MLB was actively still making a contribution to her, which it should be noted was not their first contribution to her. This year, they also gave $5,000 in the general election, uh, so total of 10000 But the other thing to note about this, which I think is getting lost here in some of the conversation about it, is that while the timing of this one was certainly attention-getting in that like I said, you know, most other groups were pulling back from donations at this time. The fact that they gave to her in the first place wasn't really that unusual that, you know, like a lot of big corporate entities packs, they give to candidates across the board. They give to, you know, a ton of people on both sides of the aisle, hundreds of thousands of dollars in every election cycle. I think this year they gave to 33 senators or Senate candidates, and there were 35 Senate races. So that says they're contributing to a lot of people, you know, working on both sides there. And that's not that unusual. Right. There's, yeah, like, certainly a discussion to be had about the fact that this system is not ideal and has lots of space for corporations to do a lot of shady things. But in the way the system works, it's pretty common and more common than not, I would say, for any big corporate power, which MLB is, to have a PAC that's giving a lot of money to candidates who are both Republicans and Democrats simply because that's the way things work. Yeah, I think that, you know, and we should say the reason that Hyde Smith's campaign has been controversial, we don't need to to dance around this, is that she has made a number of statements that, you know, she has later tried to play off as jokes, but, you know, in the moment felt and perhaps were quite serious that, you know, that she would be um, willing to sit front row at a public hanging, which as a a senatorial candidate from the state of Mississippi was perhaps an ill-advised turn of phrase. She's made jokes or what she has called jokes uh, after the fact about more liberal constituents and making it difficult for those people to vote and has sort of further um, demonstrated a sort of leniency for the Confederate history of Mississippi. So she, you know, she has been, I think, probably controversial in some ways throughout the course of her candidacy. But the front row to a public hanging remark, I think, is when the tide really started to turn in terms of corporate entities asking for their money back. (laughs) But as you say, these are not these contributions on their own, sort of absent that additional context, are not at all unusual for corporate PACs. You know, when I worked at Goldman, we had an employee PAC, which sounds quite similar to MLBs. And if you go through the list of, you know, employees who gave to the MLB 
pack. They're, you know, they're front office names that you would know um, and be familiar with, but likely, you know, given how these things normally work, weren't directing uh, donations to any particular campaign, but rather leaving that to the discretion of, of the PAC's administrators to sort of decide where the money was going to go. Do you think that's a fair characterization? Yes. And I think apart from that, also, I feel like I've seen some people kind of projecting a very specific political agenda on this. And I think certainly in the way it's been handled, it hasn't come off looking great. And the fact that it is politics and political money, yes, politics is at the center of this, but it's not usually about a group looking to target very specific issues. Like I saw, you know, people saying like, what does this mean about MLB's involvement in the state of Mississippi? Like it has really probably nothing to do with the fact that she's running in Mississippi. It's just that these large corporate groups have interests that intersect with politics and this is part of how they try to advance them. Like the biggest corporate PAC donor this year wasn't, you know, something in the arms industry or something in defense. It was the National Beer Wholesalers Association. Um, So that intersects with baseball too, I guess. But um, yeah, it's this idea that it's not that MLB is probably chasing after some very specific political aim here. It's just that all groups have ways in which they intersect with politics and a lot of them give money uh, across the board as a way to try to advance that. So, yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, Cheryl made a point of of noting this and I was struck by it when I was digging through the the filings, this particular PAC's filings on the FEC's website, which, you know, we should note this is all publicly disclosed information. If you're keen to to go down a potentially depressing rabbit hole, you can go through and, and pick out the campaign contributions of some of your favorite personalities <laughs> and baseball players, although, you know, buyer beware on what you might find there. But their their largest campaign cycles or largest contributions in the last campaign cycle were to the the DCCC and the RNC's equivalent to that. So, you know, they are clearly trying to garner some degree of favor and influence, regardless of where the results of any particular election um, pan out. It's just that in this in this instance, the public perception of the campaign, I think, was strong, you know, strongly negative, especially in recent weeks. And the timing made it seem particularly sort of tone deaf to some of their uh, stated public goals with in terms of advancing the experience of fans of color, particularly young fans of color. So they have asked for their money back. But I think that, you know, hopefully this was sort of an eye opener for fans of the game in terms of how business interests like this operate, but also will be really interesting to see what, if any, effect it has on future contributions that this pack and that MLB more broadly may be interested in making. I suspect that it won't change the overall pattern of their campaign giving it just might inspire them to be a bit more circumspect when they're selecting their candidates. Yeah, I think so. And I think across the board, in a lot of ways, this is a very messy, broken system that does a lot of things that can be pretty terrible for politics and for people. And this contribution is just a, a sign of that. Like this contribution is really the system working as it usually works. And MLB's spending here through this commissioner's pack is, again, just a very normal part of a very strange and problematic system as a whole so yeah not exactly a a, happy way to introduce the off season as we (laughs) move into december and get close to winter meetings i think perhaps we'll 
we'll shift away from this topic. And I'm curious to talk to you about, well, first, you've had a, a sort of change of job, as I alluded to earlier, and are now a full-time writer at Sports Illustrated. Uh, so it has been, as we noted, quite a shift from your last appearance on Fangraphs Audio. And I think it's always interesting for people to hear about sort of how people's perception of baseball changes once they're covering it full-time. We've spent maybe a bit too much time on that on this particular podcast of late with Carson's <laughs> departure and my promotion, but we'll we'll beg the audience's uh, forgiveness to spend a bit more. And I'm just curious, as you've, as you've become sort of a full-time, no longer interested in the campaign finance disclosures of uh, major corporations experience, except when they are Major League Baseball, sort of how that how that transition has gone and maybe some of the things that have been the most surprising to you in your first sort of full season of coverage. Yeah, it's something that I'm still kind of unpacking in my head. I think partially because this wasn't like a specific career goal of mine. I kind of fell into this starting here at Fangraphs with this newsletter. And yeah, I just, I like my big picture goal or dream was never become a baseball writer because I didn't think that was like a job that real people had. <laughs> like, I mean, yeah, that was like, seemed like a step of craziness, like one pass to like become an astronaut or whatever. So <laughs> yeah, I think because of that, like I just, when I started, it was just completely and purely from a, a fan's interest, like when I started blogging. And so I didn't have to really reckon with it until a little bit later, like when I'd already been, you know, writing for very little money for various blogs for a little to realize like, oh, like you might actually be doing something with this. You know, there's a set of expectations along with that. And you should probably start to think about it a little bit differently as opposed to just, you know, a fan who happens to write a little bit about baseball online, sometimes transitioning into a person who actually writes about baseball and is a baseball writer before a baseball fan. And yeah, it's, it's hard. Like at the beginning, I felt kind of a, almost a sense of loss, like in, in a good way, but it was like for so long, this had been what I turned to, to decompress. Like, you know, I've always lived on the East Coast. And so I would listen to West Coast games while I was falling asleep. Like that had been a tradition I'd had for years since I was like a, a kid. And for that to go from like something that I just enjoyed in a very pure, simple way without any obligation attached to it into my work was harder than I thought it would be. Like I thought it was just going to be the most amazing thing in the world. Like what could be better than writing about baseball full time? But it was kind of hard to transfer that away from being, you know, something that was just purely a source of joy. But I think it's changed the way I watch it, but I think for the better in that I, you know, I notice more things, I think more critically about it, but that doesn't necessarily make it less fun or less interesting. If anything, I think it makes baseball more interesting to me. You also had sort of this strange stopover in between, you know, what you were doing right after you graduated and when you joined SI, which is that you were you were covering not only baseball but any number of sports for Deadspin in, in a weird vampiric night roll that uh, I imagine is still taking a toll on your sleeping patterns. So y you had that transition, and I would imagine that in those moments you sort of longed for baseball again, but in a different kind of way where you maybe wanted to be writing about just one thing. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, yeah, I was at Deadspin for a little more than a year, like you said, doing working at night most of the time, which as you 
guest uh, was certainly not good for my sleep schedule or general lifestyle. Um, but yeah, before that, I was doing weekends and in the fall, that's just football. And oh God, you have no idea how badly I wanted anything but football for the entirety of a football season. So yes, that made me appreciate, I think, what I like about baseball a little more, being forced to pay attention to more sports and realize like, oh, like there really is a reason why baseball is your favorite. And yeah, that was a, I think probably a bit of a formative period in deciding what I wanted to go after uh, if I was going to stick with sports writing and knowing that like, yeah, baseball is going to be it. Well, and now you find yourself in sort of the same boat that a lot of us do when we transition into a writing role, which is uh, an off season that stretches before us and sometimes uh, with very little action if it's a year like last year, although hopefully um, given some of the marquee free agents that are on the market this year, we'll have you know a bit more to write about rather than uh, yet another round of uh, appropriate but perhaps tiring hand-wringing about the, the state of labor relations in, in MLB. And I wonder, as you look ahead, uh, if there are any particular um, off-season storylines that you're that you're keen to engage with or are curious to see what their sort of long-term uh, impact to the game is going to be. It seems like every off-season has a story. Which one? Which ones are you looking for, Emma? One of the ones I've been looking at is if anything is done regarding the possibility of a pitch clock. That I felt like this year, even more than in years past, the off-season narrative of pace of play and what it's doing seemed bigger, like in the mainstream eye and particularly like tied to attendance concerns and the various forms of hand wringing we get all the time about whether baseball is dying. So I feel like it has its foot in the door in that sense that, you know, Manfred was just approved for that extension. This seems like a natural place to move forward. And especially since we saw with this year, the mound physicist role, like which at the time seemed like what does this do to baseball? What does this mean? Like really didn't do anything at all. It seemed like both reviewers and it seems like to players, like no one really cared in the slightest. And I'm wondering if that's going to be a gateway to more. And if this year will be the year for that more considering that, you know, the commissioner's office doesn't have to get the players association's approval for a change like that, as long as they have to give them the proper period of notice. Right. And, I think given with, this is another facet of the labor conversation, I guess, which it seems like we're going to end up having no matter what, but yeah. that, yeah, it touches everything, but that certainly wouldn't be a cert- the sort of unilateral change that I think the Players Association would be super gung-ho about, but I wonder if it's going to reach a critical point for the commissioner's office if they go ahead with something like that anyway. Have you been to minor league games where you've experienced the pitch clock? I'm always curious what people what people's experience of it is when encountering it sort of in the wild. Because I've seen games with a pitch clock, and it's mostly fine. It doesn't seem like it disrupts the flow, you know. There's no violation of, like, our pristine pastoral pursuit, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I actually haven't been to a minor league game with it, but I went to – something completely different, which was uh, the Women's Baseball World Cup in August, and that used it. And uh, yeah, you don't really notice it at all. And, you know, I'm sure Pedro Baez is going to notice it, obviously. But for the vast majority of pitchers, that's not a pressure to move back from where you already are in terms of the time you're taking to pitch. So yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I would imagine that especially as younger guys are coming up who have 
you know, they've lived their entire professional lives, basically, uh, in minor league systems that observe a pitch clock, that it's not likely to be seen as a terribly significant change. I mean, I'm always curious in moments like this where there is there is sort of a, a very real labor question, right, which is how much unilateral authority are we comfortable with the commissioner's office exercising, even if it's you know, unilateral authority that they have already, right? This isn't a new, it wouldn't be a new change for them. But I'm always curious in those moments, like how sincerely felt the concern is with respect to the the rule change itself and how much of it is a sort of growing consciousness of the, the difference that you might experience in power from one side to the other. I don't know if we'll ever get a, a totally candid answer on that question, but I wonder, I wonder how much guys really care about the you know, impending clock. I know there were a lot of people, a lot of catchers and pitchers who seemed quite concerned about the mound visits and and what it would mean. And then it didn't really seem to be a a storyline that persisted through the regular season. Yeah. I mean, I haven't talked to any players about this specifically, so I'm totally just speculating here. But we love to speculate. That is one of our favorite things to do on Fangraphs Audio. A time-honored hobby. Um, (laughs) But yeah, I mean, I, my gut read on that is that it is mostly a symbolic thing, which completely makes sense that, you know, any time that the commissioner's office is exercising unilateral power, the union's role and the player's role, like, logically is going to want to be to question that and to make sure that's rooted in something reasonable and fair. But yeah, I don't know. It, it seems hard to me to imagine that that many players would have extremely strong feelings about this for what it is and not for a uh, symbolic thing. I wonder how many words we'll be able to get out of watching Pedro Baez react to having a pitch clock. Okay, something I've really wanted to read that hasn't been done is Andy McCullough, I think, did a great feature about Pedro Baez's slowness in general. But I want to know, is he that slow off the mound? Like, is he, is he extremely deliberate about tying his shoes, about making dinner? Like, I just would love to know if that translates outside of baseball for him. That is a painfully good idea. That is like a shockingly good idea. Do you really want to give away that very good idea on this podcast? (laughs) Well, I think it's the sort of thing you would have to be a beat reporter to do, like to already know him. I don't think I could exactly parachute in and be like, hello, you've never talked to me, but I want to know about how slow you are. Not baseball. We're not going to talk about baseball. Just let me follow you around your house for a day. (laughs) I wonder, I wonder if... Mm. I wonder if there's enough time because my impulse when when confronted with very good ideas like that is to try to find a way to write them without leaving my house <laughs> because I'd like to not leave my house. And so I'm trying to decide if we ever get enough in in any given game that the Dodgers play is enough time is there enough time with the camera on Pedro Baez when he is not pitching for us to you know, somehow extrapolate that around other baseball adjacent activities he does that aren't, you know, as you said, tying his shoes or like putting away dishes from the dishwasher or whatever. Hmm. Oh, that is a great idea. I I don't know because I feel like the closest you get is a shot of him like warming up or getting ready to warm up. But even that is so fleeting. You'd have to be really careful with it. Hmm. Sounds like the sort of thing that one or both of us might spend too much time on in a day. 
Yeah, I look forward to seeing uh, the results of you spending an entire day and a half watching footage of Pedro Baez not pitching, but just like wandering around the bullpen. <laughs> and who's going to yell at me now? Carson is gone. It'll yeah. have to be Appleman. Being like, <laughs> so there was no, there were no words on Fangrass.com today. What did you do? Well, <laughs> solve one of the great mysteries of our time. <laughs> A journalistic pursuit of the highest order, David. The most important <laughs> questions. Those are the only questions we're interested in answering. Or at least that your managing editor is interested in answering. Oh boy. Could get very goofy very quickly. Pitch clucks is a good one. I'm trying to think of other things that I'm I'm interested in. I'm curious to see how quickly the market moves. Not just because I think we'll get a better indication of sort of how keen ownership is on spending money in this cycle, which, you know, we thought was going to be this great, crazy free agent pass with all these guys coming, coming up at the same time. And then it, you know, it has turned into something that is significantly less potentially fantastical uh, than we thought it was going to be because of injury and sort of poor performance. But I'm, I'm curious to see how quickly guys are, are inclined to sign given what might be fear of, waiting around until February or March like some some folks did last year. I wonder how much that's going to end up mattering. I suppose it'll probably vary uh, depending on how sort of what tier, if you will, of free agency a, a particular player falls into. But I, I wonder when we're going to start seeing the big dominoes drop. As we recorded this, we are coming off of uh, Josh Donaldson signing a one-year deal with the Braves, which will be in the past by the time people are listening to this but you know we still haven't seen the the really big heavy hitters uh start to fall yeah like there is this sense last winter i think that it was really hard to pass judgment on the labor market as a whole given that you know it made sense that with such a prime free agent class coming up this year teams were going to be more hesitant that there wasn't as many options to draw that kind of spending and so I feel like this year will be more of the real test of, in terms of like what sort of showdown, if any, could players and owners be looking at a few years down the line here. So yeah, just from a selfish standpoint as a writer and someone who cares about baseball, I'd like to see stuff sooner rather than later. Uh, it already <laughs> feels like it's like the middle of February. It seems like the World Series was forever ago. Yeah, it does have a kind of... You start to mark your time based on landmarks or obvious sort of goalposts in the in the baseball calendar, and then those end up being kind of f- further apart from one another than you would expect them to be, and it can have a very disorienting effect after you you know run out of games every day. Even when we had fall league games, it felt like well, there's some baseball happening somewhere, and I suppose the winter leagues are still going. But in terms of baseball, that is easy for you know us and and listeners to actually watch we're we're now quite a ways away <laughs> from having anything and and even winter meetings i think tend to be i don't know they don't they generate a lot of news but if they're anything like last year they might not actually move the market all that significantly depending on how long you know guys like harper and and machado take to sign although i say that and and maybe i'll look at twitter right now and they'll have signed no it doesn't seem like it <laughs> Seems like they're still out there. Ah, mm. Glad to know we don't have to scrap everything and uh, start all over. Um, oh, we would emergency never, recording. We would never do that. <laughs> we wouldn't do that. I might have to bail on you to go edit if uh, if I were to look at Twitter and um, those guys had had signed. But 
Uh, yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah, you would have understood. What else is uh, is uh, tickling your fancy when it comes to the off season? In terms of like specific free agents, I feel like I'm all harpered and machadoed out. Yeah. So I guess I've been thinking more about some of the smaller names. Like I guess Charlie Morton is one that interests me to see how much people are going to buy into his reinvention in Houston, given his age. Let's see who else has been moderately interesting to me. Well, your fa- your favorite tall, spindly guy from your, you know, sort of favorite team, Andrew Miller. Yes. Ugh. Andrew, where are you going, friend? I saw his name connected with the Mets, and it's the sort of thing where you want guys to get paid, and I guess if that were the best deal he were offered, I would want him to take it. But as a person who greatly enjoyed watching Andrew Miller, I was sort of annoyed by that idea. I kind of wanted them to stay away from him. Stay away from him, you Mets. Right. Like, I'd like him to be paid, but I'd also like him to be happy. And uh, mm-hmm. while I certainly cannot claim any insight at all into what makes him <laughs> or really anyone happy, that just doesn't seem like it's uh, trending in the right direction there. Yeah, I, I haven't seen I haven't seen anything connecting him to that organization in a little while. So perhaps perhaps he arrived at the same conclusion and decided to take his daddy long legs act somewhere else. Yeah, that is the sort of thing that I wish we heard more of from free agents. I know Sam Miller talked about this during an effectively wild many moons ago. The avocado um, factor. Yeah, I, I would <laughs> I would love to hear I would love to hear more candid feedback from free agents about what what drove their decision and and often you know i think we're safe to assume that it's the money and trying to maximize uh your earning potential while you're in your prime because you know we only get so many well we don't get any runs at these things not being baseball players but they only get so many runs at these things but like assuming you know contracts of equal value and equal uh, sort of annual value between cities like what what ends up tipping the scales is it proximity to home or good avocados or you know how competitive a baseball team is I worry that I would be inclined to go to a a team that actually isn't expected to do much because I fear embarrassment and shame very strongly (laughs) it's probably why I'm not a baseball player probably part of it but (laughs) (laughs) the only difference (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I feel like this is definitely one of the areas where thinking of baseball as a normal job is a uh, failed pursuit, just because it's really not. But yeah, like personally, it means a lot to me that I can work from home and wear pajamas every day. That is anyone ever judging on uniform style? Like the silliest little things that I'm sure are would not yield any interesting answers at all. Like... I would like to know a little bit more, even though I'm sure they disappoint us uh, with the the fact that they're probably not factors at all. Well, they're probably factors that are, you know, very practical. Like, what is the quality of the school system there? Or, uh, you know, how close is it to, you know, we've seen players in the last couple of years who have prioritized sort of proximity to home if they have an ailing parent, you know, and they want to be want to be able to be near when they're when they have series in their home park or you know so it's it's probably practical stuff like that but I would love it if Manny Machado like surprised us all and signed with the Reds because he likes 
They do weird food there. Don't they do spaghetti in a strange way? Uh, yes, Skyline Chili. Yeah, uh, so they, he's like, you know what I've been missing my whole life is genuine Skyline Chili on a regular basis. And so here I am, your newest Cincinnati Red. That'd be great. I would love that, just to be really honest about it and have it be as silly as possible. Because, like, really, yeah. this whole thing is silly. It would be nice if it let itself lean into that. Yeah, it is It is a very – it is both a very strange and very relatable part of, of baseball because it's the only time when baseball players are similar to us and that they sort of kind of get to pick where they live. You know, the weirdest thing about being a baseball player is that you just have no control over where you live. It's like being a really well-paid PhD candidate who gets a training <laughs> track job somewhere. It's like, well, I guess I live in Lubbock now. <laughs> guess that's why i left grad school because i didn't want to live in lubbock but yeah i wish that we got more candid answers i was very curious about this when shoya otani made his choice last year i mean he talked a lot about playing with mike trout and being in la and the sort of relationship he had to the org but we we all came up with so many silly reasons that he might pick our favorite baseball team that i was Sad to not have him sort of disprove or validate some of those very silly reasons when it came to Los Angeles. Right. Like that was one of the only times I feel like we've seen in recent years where it was discussed as like teams making a huge cultural pitch and not just a baseball pitch. Yes. And that was kind of nice. I I miss that. Yeah, it was nice. Although it led to some very silly fan behavior. Oh, yeah. There was some... Uh, Certainly not fans at their best and most open-minded there. Yeah. Well, when are fans at their best and most open-minded? Good point. I don't know if they ever are. I think we just sort of range on a terrible continuum. (laughs) Yeah. I guess you could say, like, if you want to be really cynical about it, that, like, the whole end goal of fandom is being closed-minded. That, like, in order to be a fan, you have to be willing to shut out some things you probably shouldn't be shutting out. So that's depressing. We do, we do celebrate, we tend to celebrate a certain kind of, of myopia, I suppose, when we are, you know, feeling warm and fuzzy about fandom as a pursuit, because it's nice to have pride in the place you live, but it can end up being code for a lot of other stuff that, you know, can skew much darker if it's left unchecked, I guess. (laughs) Yep. Oh, what lessons are we teaching children when they go to the ballpark? (laughs) Oh, no. One place we might contemplate those free agent choices is going to be at winter meetings. And you're going to be there. Right? I am. Yes. And so are you. I am. It's an entirely too long of a time to be in Las Vegas, in my opinion. This will be my first time there. Not my first time at winter meetings, but my first time uh, in Vegas. So oh, that's We thing. have to swap advice. I have never been to winter meetings, but have been to Las Vegas three other times in my life. I'd like to point out to our listening audience that we've already talked way more concrete baseball than, I don't know, several past episodes of Fangraphs Audio. <laughs> so don't you dare complain about our Vegas digression that we're about to take. Vegas is profoundly strange. It is a deeply weird place. I took a class in college on the literature of American cities, and the professor asked if we considered Vegas a city in the tradition that we considered like everywhere else we were reading about. And I've always remembered that because it seemed like such an obvious answer, like, of course, it's a city. And then the more you think about it, it's like, it's not in the same way that we tend to think of other places. I don't know. It's I'm intrigued. 
Yeah. Well, it's it's a place that you're always, I don't know if this is true of you, I'm always surprised when I meet people who, you know, when I will ask them if I'm meeting them like for the first time, you know, hey, where are you from? And they'll say, I'm from Las Vegas. And I'm like, I didn't realize people were from Las Vegas. And of course they are because like people live there and keep the, you know, casinos running and I guess are in the shows. There aren't even going to be any good shows while we're there. We'll come back to that. But it's it's a weird place because, you know, if someone tells you like, oh, I'm from Cleveland, you're like, yeah, people are from Cleveland. They do like normal people stuff in Cleveland. But if someone tells you they're from Las Vegas, you're like, well, what is, do you deal blackjack? Like, what do you do? <laughs> and that's ridiculous because we don't define most other cities by the like occupational majority of its residents. But I think we do with Vegas. Yeah, although actually I live in Washington D.C. and I uh, I that's feel like that's example. maybe the one other city that people kind of do. Like I I didn't grow up here, but every time I say I live in D.C., that's to someone who's not here. I'm met with like, oh, you don't work in politics? What do you do? Why are you there? So yeah, I don't know. Interesting place. It's strange because there are a lot of places there where you're still allowed to smoke inside, so you have that to look forward to. You'll be like walking around. I imagine it's the same in D.C. as it is in Seattle and in many other places where, like, the number of spots where you can be inside in public and smoke has just, like, dwindled to almost nothing, which is, you know, a non-smoker is, is nice because then you don't walk out of a place smelling like an ashtray. But there are a lot of casinos where, and perhaps this has changed in the couple of years since I've been there, but, you know, you'll walk through the casino and you'll see, like, a 80-year-old woman at the slots with a cigarette. <laughs> and it's really weird because there aren't a lot of spots where you can do that anymore because we've sort of decided it's bad to like be inside in a smoke box and Vegas is like, no, it's fine. Huh. That was an aspect I hadn't uh, thought to consider. So. Yeah. So you got to watch out for that. Right. Uh, what else about Vegas? You can drink just walking around. It doesn't have an open carry law, Very which cool. leads to some really bad behavior, but is kind of nice. Sometimes, because you're like, oh, I'm just going to take a roadie, walk from giant, you know, mega building to giant mega building. What else can I tell you about Vegas? The last time I was there was for a, a work conference when I was still in finance. And I had the uncomfortable experience as a young woman uh, surrounded mostly by accountants of having a uh, door person at at a club where we had arranged bottle service. None of us were cool enough for this, mind you. <laughs> but uh, a bouncer thought that I was um, a lady of the evening. Oh, no. And I've never been a deeper shade of red than I was in that <laughs> moment. I was not – I mean, I won't make judgments about how how uh, people in that profession dress. But I was just wearing like a normal dress you would wear with your parents around. <laughs> So that happened to me in Vegas. It's a great story to tell the world. Excited for everyone to know it. Yeah, so it's an it's profoundly strange. I'm excited for, for you to engage in some people watching while you're there. If I did not care about my career advancement, I could write a very good Meg watches faces, baseball faces in Vegas piece, but I think that I might end up offending someone who matters if I did that. <laughs> what happens at winter meetings? Tell me about winter meetings. Not that much. Like in the sense of the experience of being there, like obviously, you know, there's always some amount of news that comes out of it. But that was my big takeaway from being there the first time is that 
in terms of like what you can see and do, it's remarkably little. Like, you know, all the writers are for the most part in this one big room and, you know, there are various executives who you can maybe catch walking around outside in short bits and you know the people who are already super established the Ken Rosenthal's and John Heyman's of the world are doing their thing but for the most part it's just a room with like 200 baseball writers who are all on Twitter which might sound like hell and maybe isn't that different uh but um yeah I mean I think it's it's to hear people who have, you know, been doing this for a long time talk about it, it sounds like, you know, in the 80s before, you know, all of these trades were going down, should go down over text and whatnot. And, uh, you know, FaceTime was more valuable, that it would just be executives and managers and writers, like, all getting drunk at the bar every night and this grand old time and doesn't seem to have retained that much of that, although there are still a lot of baseball writers getting drunk together every night at the bar so that part has stayed but um I was going to say (laughs) yeah that part is definitely unchanged but yeah in terms of like watching trades go down in front of you or anything uh or even like seeing that much of executives who all you know know when to leave their rooms and when to go back inside like there's not that much it's pretty uneventful hmm so all of that means they could do it anywhere and they chose to do it in Las Vegas. In Vegas. It's like the complete opposite of last year was Orlando, right? I'm trying to yeah. think of two cities that have a more different like sense of self than Orlando and Vegas. I mean, I guess that they are similar in that they are both sort of resorty attraction towns, right? Like they are built around a particular kind of entertainment. But... <sighs> Orlando is, you know, maybe more wholesome, I guess. It's Florida, so it's, like, limited in that respect, but, like, more wholesome, you know? You have, yeah. Like, Harry Potter land. I don't have Harry Potter land in Las Vegas. I guess it's, like, a built around entertainment, but very opposite forms of entertainment is yeah. the vibe I was trying to articulate. So, yeah. And then there was DC. Was DC the one that you went to? Yes. Because you were close? Although, yeah, it wasn't actually in D.C. It was in Maryland, this nice resort uh, just outside the city that was kind of isolated from everything else. So it's like this resort complex and then nothing. Mm. So, yeah, just like a very anonymous conference center. So I guess it'll be nice to uh, be somewhere with a sense of place. Yeah, I mean, place might be strong when it comes (laughs) to Vegas. I wonder if there is any relationship between the the how frenzied the trade activity is based on how isolated the locale for winter meetings <laughs> is. So if you're, you know, if you're on a resort and no one can really go anywhere uh, and you're all hanging out and, you know, Jerry DePoto has unfettered access to, to an entire <laughs> system of baseball front offices, are we likely to get more trades than if it's in, you know, Orlando or they do it in Nashville a lot? Nashville would have been great. I we love Nashville. Yeah. That, we could have uh... gone and seen shows, <laughs> seen country music shows. I would have worn my cowboy boots. Nope. I guess I could still wear them in Vegas. Doesn't read quite the same way. Yeah, this is another one, like, much in the uh, wanting to know the aspects of a player's decision in free agency that aren't related to baseball. I would love to know just across the board, how much, if at all, does personal boredom 
ever play into a general manager's trade asks. Like not so much big <sighs> trades you see coming, but like, you know how sometimes there's stuff at work that you just don't want to do. So you'll turn to like a standard list of procrastination tasks, like cleaning out your inbox or whatever. I wonder mm-hmm. if like asking to check if, you know, I don't know, like turning in to see like, hey, are we sure Mike Trout's not available is like on a list of procrastinate tasks somewhere. Oh, that is a that is a wonderful question. I think probably I mean it has to contribute some or it's like you have guys it would it would perhaps account for GMs who seemingly acquire the same player over and over again at each GM stop. You know, yeah. where they have their, like, maybe minor league free agents who, when they come available, they're like, oh, come come into the warm embrace of my current team. I wonder if that accounts for some of it, because it's just there on the list. Like, I'm bored, and I've unloaded the dishwasher, and so now I will acquire, you know, Gordon Beckham, because that's next <laughs> on my list. <laughs> I mean, I have to account for the Mariners doing that somehow. It seems like as good a reason as any. <laughs> The baseball job equivalent of, like, offering to clean out the office fridge. (laughs) I need to arrange all of my pens in a very precise way and also go get a left fielder. I mean, I don't know. There are worse explanations for some of the transactions that we see. I like to think that there is still some of that, I don't know, silliness or, you know, imperfectly rational behavior because otherwise it's just kind of boring. Otherwise, it's just sort of the same old thing over and over again. Got all these smarties doing smart stuff. We have to come up with more creative reasons for their decision-making. Yeah, that's something that I've felt myself weirdly nostalgic for the last couple of years is like, I miss really bad trades. Like, it was fun to see a really bad trade or even like really bad awards ballots. And now people are just so smart for the most part that uh, everything just isn't as bad, which isn't as fun. What was the last really bad trade we saw? Mm, probably mm. probably the the D-back side of the Shelby Miller trade. Is that oh, the last yeah. really, I was really thinking bad one? D-backs, I was thinking something under Dave Stewart seemed yeah. like it would fit the bill. Hmm. Yeah, that may, maybe that's it. Yeah. I mean, there have been trades that have seemed lopsided, but... In terms of magnitude, that one might register. I mean, the Dodgers getting Chris Taylor for Zach Lee is pretty bad, but also, you know, orders of magnitude different from from other trades. Yeah, it's been a little while where it's like, you you know, I, I found myself <laughs> earlier this this offseason, I think you and I have discussed this at, at various times, like really missing Mike Elich. <laughs> yeah. Which is weird. I'm like, did this person occupy a very important place in the in the baseball ecosystem that we didn't fully appreciate at the time, where yeah. it was just like a guy who really wanted to win a World Series unequivocally as a baseball owner was pretty invested in winning a World Series. It sounds Maybe miss that <laughs> right. Like it sounds weird to think like that is legitimately a refreshing perspective, which again seems very weird because it seems like to me if you have the money to own a baseball team, why would that not be, you know, the only thing you want for your baseball team? But yeah, there really is not anyone like him. And the, you know, the badness of some of the deals attached to that, I think it was all relative in the first place. But it also, there's something nice about that type of a bad deal that like a bad deal that just comes from wanting to win and throwing as much money as you have at it. I don't know. Yeah, I guess that like the closest thing we have Right now is maybe like John Middleton. 
yeah. the police, right? Saying we're going to spend a perhaps stupid amount of money, right? Or sign some stupid deals or do some stupid deals. He used the word stupid in a way that indicated that a lot of dollars are going to be deployed. But we don't see a lot of that in terms of public-facing comments from ownership. It tends to center around cleverness and efficiency, which, you know, are laudable sort of ends to, well, not ends in themselves, but means to other ends. But sometimes you're just like, you want a guy to come out and say, you know, it would be really cool to win a World Series. It's one of my stated goals. To win a World Series. <laughs> right. Like, and for as much praise as there is of efficiency, a lot of times the most efficient way to solve any of these problems is, is just spend money. That's a very direct and very to the point, even if it's not something a lot of people want to pursue. So, yeah, it's, it's always interesting to uh, see uh, money sort of undervalued in a weird way as a tool. <laughs> right. The new market inefficiency is spending money. <laughs> Right, which isn't to say that, you know, every free agent class is going to present obvious opportunities to do that in a way that, you know, makes sense and sort of brings back the value you want. But I get a lot of really crazy questions in my chat queue every week about, well, if we if my favorite team sent these really good prospects to this other team for this one guy, would that make sense? And I was like, I don't know, maybe like they could keep those prospects and, and go spend some money. It seemed to work pretty well for the Red Sox this past year. Aren't they glad they didn't trade Mookie Betts? I bet they're pretty happy about that. Probably. I bet if you asked them, they'd say they're pleased. <laughs> How much do you think that like fantasy baseball and a rise in like dynasty leagues among fantasy baseball plays into that mindset? I always struggle with this question because I don't want to – it always seems like it's used to make fantasy players feel bad about themselves. Yeah. And, like, it's fine. You know, it's all very strange the way that we relate to these people who we don't know. So I, I struggle to or, – or try not to sort of pin things on them that aren't fair. But it definitely contributes to some of the prospect hugging, I think. I'm not familiar with that because my favorite baseball team is the Seattle Mariners. And <laughs> they don't tend to have those – in abundance, but I think that you know it does make people sort of reticent to to get excited when their teams do things like trade prospects. Although they also get annoyed when their teams spend money. So I don't know. I think that it's less fantasy's fault and more that we've just trained a generation of fans to assume the the sort of their original position is of the general manager, and so they think in in those terms and I think it tends to make them prioritize the way that other people spend money that isn't theirs it's like what do you care it's on your money it's fine I mean you want smart organizations you want well-run baseball teams so I don't mean to to downplay it entirely but it's always a very interesting uh thing to see on Twitter when people are like I can't believe they spent this money it's like well why do you care you're fine you can still go buy a salad yeah like there are different ways to be smart and different ways to appreciate smart when smart it comes to baseball and uh yeah like i i think that's one that deserves to be appreciated a little more is just spending money that isn't yours yeah like it's it's okay to be excited at the idea of your favorite baseball team signing manny machado because manny machado will probably make your baseball team better yeah that sounds fun like it, it's <laughs> It seems like a weird thing to have like the first line of uh, care there to be, you know, concerned about what the eighth year of a backloaded contract is going to look like. Like, j just enjoy it. It's okay. Right. I think that my baseball experience personally, you know, if I put on my fan hat and take off an analyst hat, 
has certainly been better because Robinson Cano has played for the Mariners. That that has improved my experience of baseball on a basically daily basis. And, you know, the back end of that deal is going to look silly for someone. But whatever. Yeah. Not for me. (laughs) I didn't do it. In general, good baseball is uh, more fun to watch than bad baseball. Yeah. I think that we're at sort of an interesting point in that broader conversation because, you know, they're obviously like if you look at a team like the Tigers, right, they are in a weird position as a franchise in part because of very large and expensive deals that they still have to contend with. So, you know, there is a a, a needle to be threaded here, certainly. But it is I wonder how um, how that conversation is going to evolve in the coming years when labor strife seems, you know, practically inevitable at this point that we might have to do a better job of thinking about how we talk about this stuff, you know, to sort of accurately portray both sides of it and then find something that is, you know, a good blend of the two. Can advocate people being smart and also be like, well, can't you spend more money, Raise? I think you can do both those things. Like, I think the language that's used for it is, there's so much baked into that, even the idea of a good or bad contract and a bargain. And yeah, I think there's a lot of reckoning to be done with how it's talked about and balance for uh, both sides to find something that's a little more fair to the system as a whole. We ended up coming back to labor after all. It's everywhere. It's inevitable. Emma, I think that in the words of Carson Sestouli, which are now my words, that you have fulfilled your obligation to Fangraphs Audio. I mean, such as it was, obligation ties you to something way more profound than I think I was able to. But uh, you you performed whatever that was quite ably. Well, an obligation I was uh, happy to fulfill. Ah, what a gal. Aww. That has been Emma Bachelary. Emma, where can people find your work? I am at Sports Illustrated. Uh, my Twitter handle is just my name, Emma Bachelary, and that's about it. Emma, can I impose on you to share other names in your family's constellation of names that somehow are more Italian than Bachelary? I was almost named Isabella Bachelary, which would have made me far more Italian than I am right now. Didn't you have someone in your family whose name was literally Pasta? Am I misremembering oh, no, no, several no, G-chat are. conversations? No, my mom's maiden name is Pasta Love, like Pasta Love, which was actually Russian from like Pasta Lof. That was oh. Anglicized to Pasta Love, which, yeah, is more Italian than uh, a Bachelary, Pasta Love. So, <laughs> well... That has been Emma Pasolov Bachelary. Yep. <laughs> uh, you can find her, as she said, on Twitter and at SI. Emma, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me.